Welcome to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I am honored to share with you the philosophy that has underscored my personal and professional life and explore how osteopathy truly is for the health of all things. I see these principles in action every day in my varied roles as physician, parent, athlete, writer, musician, coach, and entrepreneur, and hope they will light the way for the path to your best health. Please note that while I am a physician, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining me for episode 22 of season one of This Osteopathic Life. I come to you today from Southern Oregon, where I've returned for a two-week work stint this summer. And as I approached the topic of this podcast, the idea of perspective kept coming through to me. And it began through somewhat unfortunate circumstances. If you all know me and know some of my story, uh, we left Ashland and returned back to our home state of Michigan around this time last year, about a year and 12 days ago, because of the onset of wildfire smoke um, as one of the causative factors of the transition. And having grown up in the Midwest, you know, I was pretty naive to the presence of wildfire and the incidence of smoke influencing air quality negatively. And it was a bit of a shock to me when I relocated to the Pacific Northwest and particularly into the Rogue Valley, which has anatomy that is unfortunately not conducive to moving air through. And so when there is smoke, it tends to be a place where it gets caught and it settles. And last year, on July 15th, smoke rolled in and very shortly thereafter, it was advised that if you were able, you should leave the area uh, because the air was unsafe to breathe. And this summer, they were enjoying a relatively cool summer that had been a pretty wet spring. And I arrived back uh, Wednesday afternoon this week. And unfortunately, uh, Thursday evening, smoke again began to settle in from an illegal campfire that had gotten out of control and was somewhat inaccessible for the firefighters um, to combat. And it was very interesting. The first day I was back and seeing patients, most conversations, as many knew of my departure and my return, were on, you know, how clear the air had been and hopes that it would continue and how much happier everyone's attitudes and outlooks were this summer versus last. And, you know, when the smoke rolled in, I noted to some friends that it was hard not to take it personally. And it's a ridiculous thought. And I'll often joke and make this comparison to being Elsa like from Frozen, um, where... You know, you can have any major impact that directly, that acutely on the weather. But the coincidental timing 
you know, made it hard. Do you take the blame? Do you take the hint? And many were, you know, reassuring me to just let it go. And I wasn't, you know, responsible for the smoke, of course. But two things came up for me. And on my walk home on Thursday before the smoke arrived, I was a little grumpy. You know, it was hot on the walk home. I hadn't eaten. And if any of you experienced the hangry emotions, you know, that certainly played into it. And I just left, you know, 10 days of essentially free and clear vacation in northern Michigan where I went to the water every day. And water is certainly my kind of medium for respite and relaxation and recreation. And, you know, I left my family there. So there were a number of things playing into it. And as the smoke came in, I thought, man, you know, not that I caused it, but what good does it do to bring that negative energy to the space and to the place? And, you know, I know the climate of Ashland and the tendencies and the likelihood, you know, wildfire is a natural part of, you know, the landscape here and... Unfortunately, we've interrupted it um, with putting houses, you know, in places where things would otherwise just burn free and clear. And again, just are in a place where geometrically, you know, the angles of this valley hold smoke. And so, you know, what is there really to be angry about? Um, And so that was kind of step one on the perspective piece for me and not that I could make the smoke go away necessarily, but I could shift, you know, how I thought of it. And one of my friends encouraged me directly in that way. And when she said, you know, you're not responsible for the smoke, but you are responsible for what you think about it and how you act toward it, you know, or in its presence. And a patient had also commented to me that she had seen one of my colleagues uh, during the time that I was away And they were having a conversation about the smoke, which is fairly typical in Southern Oregon in the summertime. And he had noted to her that he managed to entirely shift his perspective on the smoke last year and had just made his peace with it. And I decided to ask him directly when he was giving me a ride home, as normally I would walk here, but the smoke makes that challenging. So I've been graciously received by friends and colleagues here for housing and transportation and nourishment and socialization. And, you know, that wouldn't have happened to such a degree of intensity without the leaving and the coming back and not having a house here or a vehicle here. Um, And it's actually enriched the experience of the area. So there's a gift in that way from the wildfire smoke and its effects on our living situation and connections. And for my colleague, he noted that one day last year, you know, he was looking up at the sun. And if you've ever been in an area with smoke in the atmosphere or particularly high levels of pollution, the sun, you know, is obscured a bit and it's dulled in so much that you can look at it. You know, it's not as bright and radiant, but it takes on this reddish hue. And he was taken aback by the beauty of the sun in the atmosphere and how it changed the shape and presentation of the mountains 
and it took him back to a time when he was in India and he thought of all the positive things that had come from his experience there. And he now saw the smoke as kind of a beautiful backdrop and was able to embrace it and, you know, just be one with the experience. And so from all those pieces, I found it fascinating and thinking about last week's podcast with resistance and struggle, you know, I can't change it necessarily. I can certainly behave preventatively and not burn things, you know, be judicious with water usage, prevent things, you know, that contribute to climate change that predispose the intensity of the wildfire. And I can change my relationship to it. You know, I cannot be here in the summer months, um, which was part of the original plan that got a little bit shifted for us this summer. But be gracious and grateful for the times when I am back in Michigan with clear air and the water I enjoy and proximity to family and then return to Ashland, you know, hopefully at a later time in the season when the smoke isn't so intense. And while I'm here, do the best I can with the situation that I have. So staying indoors and embracing what that time might mean. So opportunity to do research for this podcast. You know, on a sunny Saturday afternoon, that might be something hard to do rather than be outside. But today, it wasn't a choice and it made it easier to do and it was quite enjoyable to investigate the different articles for this podcast and to just make the changes I need to. Use air filters and wear masks and just be present with what is and accept my perspective and shift it when I need to. So that was one take on perspective. And with most of the podcasts, I'll begin with an idea and a vantage point and how I think the podcast will go. And more often than not, as I start to research and investigate and Sometimes have discussions uh, with people. It will evolve a bit. And this one also gained some inspiration for me on reflection. So as I came into perspective in the smoke, I also looked back on a bike trip I took with my family right before I left Michigan last week. And we traveled north on a bike path about 17 miles, which is a relatively significant undertaking, uh, particularly for our nine-year-old who was on his bicycle and I was towing some cargo and my husband had our daughter in a trailer. My oldest was on his own bike and a ways in, my middle son kind of got ahead of himself. He was pedaling really fast and his foot slipped off and the pedal kept going and it nicked the back of his leg and it bled a little bit and he was understandably upset. It hurt. He didn't like the bleeding He was frustrated, and immediately his response was to say that the whole bike ride was a terrible idea. He wished he hadn't come. Why were we out there? And again, in that moment, those are all understandable reactions and okay to feel them and express them. And he would bike a bit further, and, you know, he would still feel that stinging of the cut. And unfortunately, I was not well-equipped 
I didn't have any accessible band-aids at that time. And in these moments of frustration, at one point, my husband just said, well, maybe we should just go home. You know, we're at mile seven and there are 10 miles to go forward, so seven miles to go back um, and just kind of be done with the excursion. And we all paused around the side of the bike path and, you know, I commented to my son that it's okay to have all those emotions, anger, frustration, annoyance, and to still carry on and continue the bike trip and get to the destination where you're going to go fishing, which is one of his most favorite pastimes. And it's really important to learn how to integrate those and what that shift in perspective can mean. You know, you don't have to like that you injured your leg and you don't have to ignore necessarily that it's hurting, but also focusing on that it's not disabling, that you're capable of moving through it while having those emotions. And maybe they will fuel you. You know, anger sometimes can be very motivating if we can harness it and use it appropriately. And he did. He pedaled harder for a while and, and settled in finally and you know, made it to the end point of our destination and fished and did well. It's so important to understand how to engage that full range of emotions to see how it can influence our perspective um, and to see what control we have over it. And that's something we talk about a lot as well is, you know, we're in charge of our thoughts, feelings, and actions. And making those shifts in perspective can be helpful when we're able to. Another way perspective comes up in our family is considering that two people can experience the same event, even sometimes from the same relative vantage point, and have experienced it entirely differently. And again, most of my examples come from the land of parenting, where I spend much of my time and gain some of my greatest lessons, you know, where there might be a sharing incident and one person thinks they're being appropriately reasonable with the boundaries they've set and the other feels that's a selfish standpoint and can't believe that someone wouldn't share. And both can be true. And both can be true at the same time for those individual people and it's not a matter of getting one person to shift and agree with what you experience necessarily, <clears throat> but there's space within that to acknowledge that the experience of the other was different and listen to how they experienced it and understand why it felt different and if you might do something differently yourself from it or not, but just gain that insight and awareness that they experience a situation differently, that that's okay. And certainly if it's crossing boundaries of, you know, politeness or safety or appropriateness, those become teachable moments and where we can shift and stand behind the lens of another and gain or change our perspective appropriately. That was the beginning of my exploration of perspective. And as things can happen when you type into a Google search bar, 
you can go down other pathways or rabbit holes at times. And in this case, I put in changing perspective for health. And my intent with that was to see how being able to shift perspectives or taking the time to change your perspective can contribute to your own personal individual health. And I did find that there were some articles in psychology journals and you know some self-empowerment websites talking about how shifting your own perspective can change your health, you know, and thinking yourself well and thinking yourself happier or content in you know, being grateful for what you have in all of these different quotes and pieces. And I appreciated those and initially was going to spend more time exploring that. But what was more intriguing to me as this came up, um, and especially in light of the pending onset of my time in the Osteopathic Health Policy Fellowship in a few weeks, were perspectives in health, referring to the approach to healthcare and healthcare systems and policies. And since that's where I'll be going for much of this next year, I decided to dive a little deeper into that aspect of considering perspective and its influence on health. And to be fair, probably more aligned with the origins of this podcast and this osteopathic life in general is to see, you know, how these topics engage with osteopathic philosophy and contribute to the health of all things. And the one I spent the most time with uh, was from Economic and Political Weekly. It's uh, from December 2003, and the article is called Changing Perspectives in Public Health from Population to Individual by Vijay Kumar Yadavendu. This is a nine-page article or paper or entry as you want to look at it, and I would recommend investigating it and taking some time to read it and investigate. Um, it's free to be read it online, or you can pay, I think, a $9 fee if you'd like to download it. Sometimes I do like to hold things on paper still. But the part that was most helpful for me in this article, and I think what I'll actually do is talk about it more in depth in a second edition of this podcast. will be my first two-part podcast. But the best part of it was that it gave me a better place, a better platform, a better perspective on an entirely separate article I'd read earlier in the week that just felt wrong to me or just didn't sit well with me, but I couldn't articulate why. I didn't have a good sense of exactly what about it didn't sit well and what my commentary would be about it. Um, but in reading this article about kind of the history of the evolution of how we approached care of the patient gave me a wider view to understand my feelings, my perspective on this other article I read. So it's perspective in so many different ways. And I'd like to look more at this other article from Cardiovascular Business, Strategies in Economics, Practice, and Technology, which seems to be an online platform. It was entitled, Expert, colon, Doctors, quote, ignorance of nutrition, end quote, is affecting patient outcomes. And this was posted on social media, and there's some commentary on it. 
that followed, and I hesitated to post anything, and I haven't yet, and I don't know that I will. But from the title and through the way the article was written, it just seemed unnecessarily inflammatory and derogatory without much positivity or opportunity for growth or solutions. And I obviously have a bias. I'm a physician, so when I read it and I see that it's, it sounds like doctor bashing in a way. And I'm not saying there's not room for criticism or reform or opportunity for growth. But in this moment in time, there is a bit of an anti-physician movement um, going around. And I'd like, through this podcast, you know, empowering my osteopathic colleagues and all my physician colleagues, and engaging with non-physicians who are patients of physicians and empowering them to a positive relationship. I just would like us, if we could, to think about why we have physicians and what physicians do offer that is unique and needed and important and from that perspective, focus on the health in medicine. You know, do you want a physician on your team when you need a significant surgery, when you need evaluation to diagnose, you know, challenging conditions, when you need to have preventive screening so you aren't subject to diseases, that we have treatments, you know, that could improve the quality or quantity of your life? What is all the training? What are the areas of expertise? What are the gifts and talents and experience and education that physicians bring uniquely? And how do we optimize that? And how do we honor that? And how do we respect that there's been a shift in how physicians have been made to practice in you know, how they've been held to certain expectations and remember that really the great goal was to serve the health um, of patients and how did that get interrupted and that's part of this osteopathic life is removing those obstructions and removing those barriers so perhaps I will make a comment on this article mostly to say you know is this removing or placing a barrier into the care for patients and if we move into the article, it's talking about how physicians don't often counsel on nutrition, they're not trained in nutrition, they don't practice the good nutrition themselves, and it can lead to poor outcomes for patients. And there are many things that weren't great in the article. But interestingly, the two clinical examples were very late stage complications of chronic diseases, you know, an uncontrolled diabetic needing the amputation of his leg, and some with cardiovascular disease, pending open heart surgery, and making comments that at that stage, in those moments with those patients, they physicians were seeking more significant intervention rather than counseling on diet. And certainly, there's space for nutritional counseling and improved exposure to nutritional recommendations. That said, there's still a lot of controversy on recommendations that come through you know, high up medical organizations. And so 
gleaning what the possible and appropriate information education would be for that is a whole other story. And certainly can physicians lead by example? Yes. And again, thinking about what are the obstructions to that? Why might a physician not be healthy themselves? Is it time or stress or schedule? In that same thought, I would like to apply in this article to those patients. So if we're looking at an end-stage patient with diabetes, requiring an amputation, is it the lack of commentary by the physician in that moment that's the problem? Is it that going back? Or is it that the recommendations were poor from the American Diabetic Association historically? Or that even if there were appropriate recommendations made, there wasn't access to the foods that were necessary for that or the tools or the skills to prepare those foods or the money to be able to afford them or the proximity to be able to access them or culturally the willingness to shift the diet of a family or genetically and culturally you know, the type of eating that would be required or traumatically, you know, were there incidents in early childhood that led to stress for that patient where it became impossible to make good decisions and food became a coping mechanism. You know, so trying to lay all the blame on the lack of nutritional counseling at that moment in the physician-patient relationship just seems silly, you know, and that's a totally not helpful word, but it's missing the point. You know, it's looking for somewhere to put the blame in that moment, perhaps to promote other professionals or take the pressure off the patient or make the physician the scapegoat. But any of those things are not improving the care of that patient or of the greater population of patients because there are many who are in that same situation. And rather than saying this physician needs more training or should be counseling. Again, all may be valid points, but on the grander scale, looking at, you know, what are all those pieces of the socioeconomic, cultural, environmental well-being of this patient and how do we make the changes there? Because that's where the big difference lies. And that's something I came back to in that article um, from 2003, in the Economic and Political Weekly, where the attention was drawn and the comments were made that we need to approach that wholeness of the patient and understand where those challenges are and how those systems need to be improved rather than seeking individual blame, whether the individual being blamed is the patient for making poor choices or the physician for not pointing out pieces like diet. So if anything, perhaps we need to look at the reform in medical education to understand that grander perspective of population health and what challenges your patients might have to even follow the recommendations if you do happen to give them and how do we become active participants in that or advocates for that um, and if we're using our expertise for the clinical applications of medicine, procedures and surgeries and deliveries and hands-on care and clinical examination and you know interpretation of studies, 
Maybe we don't have the time or the capacity or need to be the ones in the ring, but maybe some do, you know, and that's where this fellowship comes into play for me. I will pick up, you know, that piece in my corner of the profession and learn more and gain more insight and bring that back to my colleagues and encourage their involvement or take their voices back into the political realm as that's needed. But I would like for us to have a grander perspective when we read any of these type of articles and, you know, it's easy to be the critic, you know, it's easy to point out the flaws. It's harder to honor and acknowledge the good and see where there can be solutions through shifts in perspective. And that's how it is in osteopathic treatment. And we've talked about this before in previous podcasts where it's easy to find what's not moving well, right? To identify the disease or dis-ease in the patient. It can be harder to really see the health and see what's working well and honor that and optimize that both physically and physiologically and in awareness, drawing those connections for the patients. That's really part of the osteopathic difference in distinction and part of the tradition and philosophy that we're carrying into our merging with the allopathic world for postgraduate training to show that that perspective can make a difference and can be powerful and it matters in that we do better when we honor that which is good and unique and valuable and meaningful with each other. And if the gaps are identified, see how we fill them. Do we already have the talents and skills and time and capacity amongst us to do that? And we just need to do some realignment and shifting? Or is it truly missing and we need to go and gather new data and knowledge and skills um, like for me with this fellowship and for others perhaps with training at courses or reading or refreshing or engaging or practicing in areas that perhaps we've neglected for a while. So that's my part one of the Perspective podcast. And next time we'll dig deeper into that article. If you want to read it in advance, you can do like homework for this podcast. How exciting. Um, Again, it's Changing Perspectives in Public Health from Population to Individual by Vijay Kumar Yadavendu, Y-A-D-A-V-E-N-D-U. It's from 2003. It's a nine-page entry. If you read in advance, maybe the podcast will hold more interest for you. And we'll spin off from that. And we'll move into the week, and I hope it'll find you with clearer air here in Oregon. But if it doesn't, there'll be a clearer sense of the space from me as I engage my perspective around it. Thank you for listening today. And if you have time, please find the podcast on iTunes, rate and review. This is Dr. Millie Beakey with This Osteopathic Life. Thank you for listening.